Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas change the world. Uh, most of us uh, in this era of digital transformation, those of us building companies, building teams, trying to understand how this technology can take us to the next level, digital transformation is, um, is right in the forefront of every company and should be for every individual. We need to be reinventing ourselves, creating different ways of shaping how we do work and, uh, and how we construct teams and how we go to market. As you know, I've been um, very much on top of that because it is changing our world. Uh, but it, I, it struck me that digital transformations looked at as a technology where, where it really isn't. At the core of it, at the root of it, is a very simple word that's often misunderstood and definitely difficult to apply for some reason. And that's the word innovation. I came across a gentleman who is living and breathing innovation. He's an award-winning innovation expert. He's also a professor of innovation and entrepreneurship. And his clients include some of the world's most innovative organizations on the planet. And fortunately, I saw him on LinkedIn and I became acquainted with a book he had published called Be Less Zombie, How Great Organizations Create Dynamic Innovation fearless leadership, and most importantly, passionate people. And I wanted to get a hold of them, and I got a hold of Elvin Turner. Elvin, welcome to The Great Conversation. Thank you, Ron. It's a real honor to be here. I, uh, I'm very excited. Let's start with one thing. They can read your bio. We don't need to go into all the different things we do. We have 20 minutes uh, to have a great conversation by my fire, my virtual fireplace here. But let, you know, it struck me when I first came across the book, Be Less Zombie, I hadn't read the other part of the line of your book. I just saw Be Less Zombie. And, and, and I, thought, I got to thinking, why did he choose zombie? So I looked at the term, Elvin, and it said, willless and speechless human. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, why did you choose zombie? Well, I was asked by a business school in the UK to run a session for them as a, an executive kind of MBA type session. And they said, can you tell us what are the secrets of these unicorn companies? What is it that they're doing differently? How do they think differently? How are they so original? How are they so fast? What should corporates learn from them? Because it was a, a corporate audience. I said, sure, I can do that. So uh, I designed the session and I, I decided to kick off the day by drawing an imaginary line on the floor. And at one end, I said, this end is the, the unicorn organizations, you know, the 1 billion valuation, they're moving fast, they're, they're, they're learning, they're growing, they're disrupting. And at the other end, we need some kind of creature that would describe organizations that are the opposite, that are struggling to survive, that are living dead, all of the words that you just used, Ron. And I want you to think about the innovation profile of your organization and go and stand somewhere on the line that, that kind of suits your profile. Everybody ran to the zombie end. And that kind of got my attention. I thought maybe there's something in this. And we started on the day actually talking about be less zombie principles rather than be more unicorn. It ended up being be less zombie. So it kind of grew from there. And then as I was writing the book, an interesting little thing came up. I like I liked to type phrases into um, anagram, anagram generators. And it turns out 
that an anagram or one of the anagrams of be less zombie is blob seizes me which again reinforced for me that you know the power of bureaucracy and you know the status quo to pull us back from the relevance that tomorrow is is shouting to us to to create today oh you know it, it's really interesting and and um in uh watching you on linkedin and also listening to you on tedx you you bring up something really fascinating uh, because innovation, if you really are going to create an innovation gene and a business process around innovation, you touch on something. It, was, it just, it just really, it really got to me. And that is um, what, why do, why aren't your employees thinking and expressing their ideas of how to make the company greater. And you said two things, creative constipation and creative indigestion. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So the irony often is I, I get invited in to talk to senior execs and they'll say, Elvin, you got to help us. We, we ask for big ideas because we know we need more. We know there's, there's a ton of research out there showing that if you land a big idea, the level of profitability versus a ton of incremental ideas is chalk and cheese. We want bigger ideas. I open the big idea cupboard, it's empty. What's wrong with our people? You know, we're, we're saying you have permission, bring us bold ideas and nobody moves. The irony is that when I actually go and talk to the employees and say, you know, what's up? There are tons of ideas. People are sitting on those ideas, but they don't feel safe to let them out. Hence the phrase corporate uh, creative constipation. So lots of reasons for this. First and foremost is if I put my hand up and suggest this idea, I'm going to look crazy. That's not going to be good for me. Secondly, if I put my hand up and suggest an idea and my boss says that's worth pursuing, I just got myself an evening job and I'm already running at 120%. I don't want that. I want my life, you know, particularly in the last 18 months that we've been through. And then thirdly, if I put my hand up and my boss says, let's go for it. And I do manage to make it work uh, in the evenings and it fails. Why would I do that? I'm just setting myself up for failure because this organization doesn't know how to do this well. It doesn't know how to learn. It doesn't know how to bring new ideas in, in ways that are safe for people to, to, to do. So there's, there's the creative constipation, people holding it in. And then even if an idea makes it through the system, often because metrics and measures and systems and processes and motivation is all set up around mostly the maintenance of the status quo, big ideas die fast in that context. When an executive is presented with the very thing that he or she was asked was asking for, often they, they don't know how to handle it. There's nowhere for it to go, to grow, to be tested. And it will end up often just being pushed back a quarter and then another quarter and then another quarter or just being seen as unrealistic, you know, come back with something that's more likely to work. And at the root of this is a desire for predictability. And this is where we have the biggest problem. We're, we're saying, listen, everybody, you will work in a culture that, which we could define as ordinary. That's often what we mean by you know, how we get things done around here. But I want you to bring us extraordinary ideas and the two don't fit. So you need, as an executive, I believe, the first step you need is to be make a deliberate choice. If we want bigger ideas, we can't just ask for them. We have to create a deliberate environment in which they can thrive and succeed. And sometimes that means setting things up slightly differently so that the t- that, that and the status quo can work together in a healthy way, in a healthy tension, in tandem. 
you know, that's, uh, that's backed up from my experience and my readings. I'll never forget the case study of the, I think it was the CEO or the chairman of Procter and Gamble. And someone had asked him, how do you innovate? Because, you know, Procter and Gamble is known as launching new brands all the time. How, how, how do you innovate? And he goes, well, it depends if it's aligned with our current model to your point. That's easy to do because we have a business process and we have a culture around it. But if it's outside the norm and it's a brilliant idea, he said, you probably don't want to put it in that body. <laughs> we'll call it the cultural body of the current mores and norms and KPIs of the current business. You probably want to set it outside uh, because it's going to be seen as a virus and the antibodies of the, the, new, the old culture will kill it. It, it it seems like you're saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, th there's different ways you can set this up, and that's the classic model, which is you know the lab model. You have, and and I think this works well from what I see. You you have day to day teams working on incremental innovation. What are the objectives that we have as a team? What won't happen unless we do some things differently? What therefore are our team innovation priorities, and what are some projects? And you get them going, and they're generally working with things that more or less you can predict the outcomes with a greater or lesser degree of certainty. Where you need things to work in a different way, you you generally have to create a safe environment, a, a standalone team with resources, very different metrics. You can't measure people in a lab where you're going to get 90, 95 percent failure rates, which is what you get in in any lab. You can't measure them in the same metrics that a standard team will have with the KPIs that they've got because no one's ever going to take any risk. And the whole point of the lab is to explore trends, weak signals that are coming from the future, technologies that are emerging. How could they help our customers in the context in which we serve them make greater progress than our current products and services? We're, we're really competing with the status quo to some extent and innovation ends up being an argument so you need a you need a, a separation and yet a light integration so that the two don't end up becoming fighting you know parties you know the, the lab can often be seen as this indulgence you know playing around messing about sitting on beanbags um, and the status quo can be looked at through the other lens as a dinosaur and you need to be careful that you strike the right balance that there's a healthy tension there and a, and a good flow backwards and forwards so that when something does come out of the lab you've got a healthy pathway to integration with the business that is required you know the resources and the expertise and the capabilities to cause that thing to scale in the way that we all want it to how interesting i i mentioned the proctor gamble case study and there was one path the CEO took, and it might be the right path given the context. But you also outlined something that I found to be true. To me, the main role of a CEO at the end of the day is navigating risk and opportunity, if you think about it. Innovation comes from the level he, uh, that, that CEO can do that. Uh, there are gonna be often high risk, as you say, in your book and many of your talks, I think you said something like uh, 80 to 90% of new launches fail. And that's scary if, if you're coming up with a big idea. I know, because I've been in startups, that probably about that many startups fail. One in mm -hmm. 10 make it through. 
why would anyone take that risk with their lives and their career to do that? So how, what would be your advice to the CEO and their teams in creating a culture of safety to be able to explore those ideas without necessarily putting that idea, that burden on the employee to execute against it? How, what advice do you give them? Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is the executive team needs a mindset of we can't not do this. We must embrace this because the speed and scope of change is such that if we just rely on incremental innovation, we are putting ourselves at risk for the future. And it's a stewardship conversation for me. It's are we being responsible stewards of today and tomorrow simultaneously if we're not strategic about innovation? And we might not know how to do it, but we have to choose to learn how to do it well for the sake of all of our stakeholders and you know what the future wants to inherit from us. So th there's a starting point there, which is a strategic conversation around we have to do this. The second is giving confidence to that executive team. And this often shows up in, in this way for me. I get a conversation with a, a senior exec who says, don't tell me why we need to innovate. Don't tell me what we need to innovate. We think we've got those two things lined up. It's the how. How do you glue this thing together? How do you stop it falling apart? Because we try something every 18 months, we'll have an idea jam or something, and it just fizzles. Nothing seems to work. So that for me, I think one of the essential things is to put in place a process. It's really simple from what are our insights? What questions does that provoke? What ideas are we going to develop there for? What experiments are we going to run? And then based on the success of, of experiments, what are we going to scale? And that, that's a proven innovation process, lots of different versions of it, stage gates, pick one, start somewhere, because that gives you a degree of certainty through the process. So many people I meet say to me, even if I had an idea, I wouldn't know where to take it. And there's never a budget for it. And you know, there's no team, you know, get aligned. And there is plenty of resource you can find online and in books and be less zombie. I've, I've got that mapped out there. So have a process. Um, the third thing though, if there's all sorts of um, ways of starting this, one of the most powerful things that I've seen, perhaps the most powerful to create greater confidence at, for innovation right across the organization is the idea um, that you find in the lean startup, which is dream big, start small, learn fast, and encourage people to have big ideas, but teach them how to look at that idea and say, okay, how could this fail? What would need to be true? What are the dependencies of this thing working? And the, the dependencies that are we're least certain will show up or we're least certain about, but would have the biggest impact on the success of this idea are the ones we test first. So the mantra really is, um, I've worked with uh, one of the large drinks companies once and uh, was teaching this process. And one of the, the marketing directors sat up and said, ah, okay, so what you're saying is we shouldn't be spending 50K building something. We should be spending 50 bucks learning something. What's the smallest possible test we can imagine that would tell us whether we're moving in the right direction on this assumption before we build anything. So you're trying to learn one of three things. Desirability. Does anyone actually care enough about this idea before we build anything? Feasibility, number two. Even if they want it, can we build it? Is it within our gift? Is it going to be just too expensive or difficult for us to do? And then third, viability. Even if they want it, even if we can make it, Thirdly, is there a business model behind it? And in those very early stages, you're running tiny tests to create a picture 
that defines reality for you and gives you data and confidence to move on to the next level and then the next level. So it's pay as you go innovation. And when you unleash that inside an organization, suddenly managers and leaders are much happier to sponsor the beginning, the, the baby steps of big ideas, because there's no risk. No one's going to get fired for spending a couple of hundred bucks learning something and finding out that actually we shouldn't do this, which is what Google does, by the way. How can we find out what, you know, we know most of these ideas are going to fail. Let's find out which ones quickly, as fast as we can. Spend 200 bucks doing that rather than 200K only to find out the right answer, the same answer. So it's very much rapid experimentation, looking at the data, using that to make choices. Suddenly, the confidence to step into bolder ideas goes through the roof. You know what I love about that? And you're right. When you first mentioned the three things uh, that give greater confidence, dream big, start small, learn fast. I wrote down in parentheses, does he mean fail fast? And of course, that's the Google mantra. How do you fail fast? But but you, you actually colored within the lines and outside the lines to bring that home. You led with most people don't feel confident for lots of re reason, the creative constipation, you called it. Mm. And, um, and what you're doing, I think, Elvin, is redefining um, failure. You're redefining failure in your book and your approach to innovation. Does, does that ring true? I think so. I mean, I try not to use the word failure too much. You can't help it because that's the way it feels. We thought this would happen. It didn't. We failed. Okay, that's one way of framing it. Another could be, well, that didn't turn out how we expected. That's, that's an unanticipated outcome. How interesting that happened. Failure has such a stigma attached to it. The reality is, if as Google and Amazon and anyone who's doing rapid experimentation and industrial companies, all, all manner of organizations are now doing this, they'll tell you that um, most of their ideas turn out not to be um, what they expected them to be. And that's that reality, grip that grip of reality that most of what we come up with in this field of, of bolder ideas is wrong is so important because it allows you then to stop talking about failure and then you know the, the personal stigma that comes with that and more about learning because it's really about a learning culture. How quickly can we learn this stuff faster than the competition? And it's the speed of learning at the heart of this. Can we learn which of our ideas are wrong faster than the competition so that we can invest in the ones that are right? That speed of learning is, is the heart of, I think, the agile learning um, organization. The agile learning organization. Um, in your work, um, Elvin isn't just an author, by the way. He he also, like many uh, great authors, have created a workbook as well as a training course around it. Uh, when you approach an organization, Elvin, with this, and you they catch fire over your ideas, uh, where do you usually start? It depends on the organization. Ideally, you start with a conversation about um, the future. Who do you need to become? What, what is the future telling you about how you need to show up to stay relevant? How do you want to show up? You know, what outcomes do you want to achieve in that future? And somewhere in the middle, there is a reality that you need to pursue. So starting in the future and then working back, what needs to be true? So let's just pick a number. Let's just say in 10 years time, five years time, we want to show up like this and the market's probably going to look something like that. Okay. Let's work back from four years. What would, need, what would need to be true in four years inside this organization? What would we need to be doing? 
resourcing, developing, partnering, three years time, two years time, one year, it gives you a, an ability to root your strategy and then your innovation strategy, which hooks into that, into a pathway somewhat related to reality and you know the future. Now that's going to change over time. And you have to be open to what's going to happen, but having a, a mark in the sand to say, this is why innovation matters. And if we don't innovate, we won't get there. That's a really good starting point. And then out of that, start to develop an innovation strategy. So, okay, well, based on that, what journey do we need to go on around the processes that we have, the culture that we have, the leadership that we have, um, the processes, capabilities, resources? If we're going to be able to do those things we've just said that we have to do, what shifts might we need to make? What needles might we need to move that we don't currently move? What new things are we going to need to embrace? So it, it's helping them create the how, a model that gives them some sense of de more definition of what we need to invest in. And importantly, who do I need to become? And this is the heart of it often with me. You're asking two questions. Who do we need to become as an organization? What's our journey of evolution or revolution or reformation in the next three, five years? But also, what does that demand of me and us? Are we the right team? to take us to the future? Should we be looking to have transitioned to another team in three to five years <clears throat> if the capabilities that we say are going to be required there are probably not the ones that we're going to be able to bring? So these are tough questions, and I deal with them in the last section of Be Less Zombie, which is defining reality around me. And am I a potential constraint on the future prosperity of this company because of choices that I know I won't be comfortable making? So you need a safe space for an executive team to better have those kind of conversations and options for them to potentially pursue different career paths if those, you know, if the answer isn't what you want to hear. So for me, a lot of this is about dealing in reality. What does a future state look like? What would need to be true for us to get there? What would need to be true for me to be an effective steward of that future so that I feel confident and able to make the decisions that the rest of the organization needs me to make? I love this. We started with me wanting to know what the definition of the zombie and how it applies to this book. And I said, willless and speechless human. And what Elvin Turner has done is give a voice to innovation so we can be less zombie and answer the question, who do I need to become? Elvin Turner, this has been a great conversation.